Hi, my name's Kim Cole, and I'm your host of Real 510. Our podcast is dedicated to the stories of real buyers and real sellers in the East Bay residential housing environment in Northern California. Finding a solid investment to grow one half to several million dollars is a strategic and calculative exercise of wisdom and intuition. Now mix in the emotional meaning of home, your safety, your shelter, your memories. The task is daunting. The influences are great and there's no proven instruction manual. Join us as we explore the process, the challenges, and the triumphs of those who have successfully navigated the storm. Welcome to Real 510. The baby boomer population is getting older. There's, that's, that's in our face, right? It's affecting the real estate market. It's affecting retail in almost every aspect. We are downscaling from our homes in the hills. We're moving into condos in the city. We're having multiple little properties in various places. We're traveling like crazy. Our lives are really changing as a population. And I say that as one of those younger baby boomers. Um, but I am working as a real estate broker in Oakland um, with a lot of people that are now faced with the idea that I need to start planning for when I can't take care of this big yard anymore. I can't um, get around possibly as easily, or I'm dealing with my parents that are going through this same type of thing. So what happens when you are faced with the idea that you may need to change your living situation and you may not be able to handle that yourself. Add to that no family, limited associations in a particular area. What do you do? And, and, and the twists and turns of life. So I'm here today with Fred Hertz and um, I want to share a story that I felt was so important as we were going through the motions of selling um, a very dear friend of Fred's, um, and we are going to call him Carl, um, his home. And it, it, it's a much bigger picture than that. And I was really pretty blown away by the whole process of how this was put together, how it was thought through um, who got involved in this process and and how it was brilliantly, brilliantly executed. And it was a challenging situation. So um, with that, I want to introduce Fred Hertz. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Good morning. Happy to hear. Yes, it was a story. It was a saga. So tell us a little bit about you. So I am a lawyer and mediator. And I've been in the San Francisco Bay Area for 40 years. I grew up in Minnesota and came here for law school. And like many people who come to the Bay Area for school, I stayed. And I've been in the East Bay for 40 years. And I work in the areas of real estate, family law. I have a specialty in unmarried couples, both gay and straight. And I do counseling and mediation and legal work 
for families and couples in matters involving real estate and money and extended family. And I am a, I just, I would say truly I am a full-time mediator, meaning that I seem to do it even when I'm not in my office. <laughs> and our friend Carl is someone I met the first, the second year I lived here. So we've been friends for 40 years. I was part of his team. I think you called it Team Carl, which I, <laughs> which I loved. And so, yes. And we had been friends for many years. And then starting in the last year or so, Carl started to fail in many different ways. It was just like a series of unfortunate situations, right? Well, as it always is. I mean, mm -hmm. Carl had had pro medical problems. He had retired at age 69. He had medical problems. And, and in fact, about a year ago, several of us were talking and we were saying, even though he was in this apartment where there was no maintenance to do, he didn't have a yard, he didn't have stairs, mm -hmm. even handling living alone was not going to work long term. And several of us started to suggest maybe he should be considering assisted living. I should point out that Carl had a, has a large group of friends, but no kids, no parents alive. He had two siblings. One had died, and the other one was in worse shape than he is. So there was no obvious caretaker for him. And actually, over the past five years, he had developed a group of friends, one of whom served for his medical power of attorney, one of whom had his financial power of attorney, one of whom had been taking him to medical appointments. So he had a circle of friends who had specific assignments in his life. And that had been going on for three or four years. That in itself is amazing. And, and you know, the fact that Carl didn't have any family. I mean, family is typically what we rely on, right, in this kind of situation. But um, even though that was the even though that, you know, that was the case in this case, we see this time and time again where people do have family and the family can't handle it, you know, or you, you, I'm sure you have a good friend. I've got friends that will say, I was stuck with all of this. The burden was unbelievable. Well, one of the things, and actually, um, uh, I learned this lesson younger than most people do because I had a lot of friends who were dying of AIDS mm -hmm. 30 and 35 years ago, okay. many of whom were single, many of whom did not have family. And we created this model of what we call a circle of care where you face the reality that you don't have the conventional caretakers and you have to reach out. A and let me point out each I would say recruitment is its own negotiation. So, for example, when Carl was uh, having troubles a couple of years ago, he asked me if I would be one of seven people who would sort of step in once a week as needed. And I said no. I said I was too busy. I said if you've got a legal problem, call me. Yeah. But I'm actually not available. And... For example, when we, when we suddenly had to ramp up, as we'll talk about, 
the question of who was going to step in and what were they able to do was itself a negotiation. I've been on a lot of nonprofit boards and I have a big extended family, so I have a lot of experience of recruiting people. And part of it is, first of all, you have to make it clear that they can say no. Because the last thing you want is to somebody to say yes and then let you down. And the other is, and we learn this in nonprofit board work, you find out what is the task that works for that person. Some people are really good at medical issues. Some people are really good at packing boxes. Some people are really good at balancing checkbooks. And you need to find out, and some people can do it on the weekend. Some people can only do it during the week. One of the people we were involved in, you know, suddenly her 100-year-old mother started failing and moved in with her and had like weekly trips to the emergency room. So she became a little less available. So part of it is assessing what the tasks are and really getting a buy-in at a level that people can do. So, uh, so we were thinking about Carl having to move and then over the course of about two weeks, his condition declined pretty significantly. And I knew that just because I had visited him and I knew things were not good. And, but let me also say that, that he, the people who were helping him, we were not a team. I mean, you talk about Team yeah, Carl. Yeah, explain that. Yeah. Well, there was Jamie who was taking him to the doctor. There was Carol who was giving him, taking him on errands. There was Arthur who was the power of attorney. But, and I knew some of them. I didn't even know all of them. Okay. Um, and so one day in May, I'm in a meeting and I get a call from somebody who was part of that group when we, before we were a team and said, we got a problem, Carl's in the hospital. Uh, he fell. Okay. So we suddenly had this crisis. Okay. And I had to then figure out, okay, who's going to do what? And actually, I would say the team was formed in the lobby of the hospital mostly because we were going to visit him. And as we were going to visit him, suddenly Jamie said, oh, he doesn't have his wallet or his cell phone because the ambulance took it without it. How do we get into his apartment to get the cell phone and the, uh, and the wallet? And suddenly we had to figure out, you know, who has authorization, who has the financial power of attorney, how we can convince the doorman of the apartment that we actually were right. his friends and not burglars. Yeah, yeah. So we could have access to his apartment. And it started with a simple task is how do we get his phone and wallet to him in the hospital? And that's how the team began. And that's how it began. And so then we started thinking like, okay, who's going to call to cancel the appointments he has? Who's going to uh, find out, get close to him? So what started happening and, and I would say, you know, you, you, you learn very quickly. Is somebody going to say yes or is somebody going to say no? If they say yes, do they show up? So you learn pretty quickly who's going to be part of this team. So it then there were about three of us that started working together. 
This whole thing is so interesting. And as an outsider coming into the team, and I, uh, I feel like our, our team, our brokerage team was a part of the team at a point. You know, people were recruited along the way for sure. But it certainly appeared to me that this was all very well thought through to begin with. And you're saying, well, no, it really just kind of came together. But it didn't really come together. There was some leadership that actually had, this is the framework for what we know needs to happen. And now here's the reality. We've got to bring in some soldiers. So we had, so as I said, there already was a group of three or four people who had tasks who could be called on. And when then we ramped up from being an occasional doctor visit to a whole life crisis. Then we started reaching out and there were really three of us who were, well, there were four. There were four who were the prime team. There was the medical power of attorney, the financial power of attorney, and I would call sort of business manager. Then there was the, uh, property manager and I was the legal head of the team and the four of us actually within the first week because Carl spent about five days in the hospital and then was in a nursing home for three weeks and then it really was in that nursing home setting where we came to realize that Carl wasn't going to be able to move back to his apartment And this is the really pivotal event when you have to say to somebody, you're not going home again. You have fallen, you are injured, your condition has declined, and all of the professionals are saying, you'll be well enough that you'll be alive, but you're not going to be able to move back. And that was actually one of the team assignments was having all of us reach that same conclusion so that there was no dissension within the team. There was no weakness for him to feel, really, right? Yeah, and we had to be consistent Mm -hmm. over a three-week period of saying, you're not going to be able to move back. And And I would say even within our team, we actually talked about who was the one to deliver that message. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, So then we realized he wasn't moving back. That's a really hard thing, Fred. I mean, you, as human beings, we always want to hold out the hand of hope to some degree, right? And you see somebody that's in a physically failing situation, which that was happening at the time. You want, like, you want that driver almost, right, as motivation or strength for them. Well, yes. I mean, in this case, the hope was that Carl would be able to go into an independent living situation which in fact he wasn't able to do one of the problems is that because he had lost the ability to walk without a walker and had other problems he actually wasn't even eligible for independent living it was assisted living Mm -hmm. so so faced with this reality we then started to think about well what has to be done And we had to think about what has to be done and who's going to do it and then how to do it. Did everyone lead this or was there clearly a leader or 
two leaders or how did that whole thing, that whole dynamic work amongst the group? Well, I'd say there were three of us who were sort of the team leaders. Okay. And uh, in the sense that the three of us communicated the most with each other. Okay. We had the most emails with each other. Okay. And we would try to coordinate and then reach out to the other five or six people. And in fact, part of it was that also was, was shifting. So for example, one of the original four of us basically said, give me assignments and I'll do it, but I've got too much going on in my life. Don't put me in charge. Okay. And what happened, what became clear was that there were areas of expertise. And that was sort of the key to figuring this out, that different people had different skills. I also want to just point something out, which is what I would say the positives and negatives of lots of emails. So there were emails flying, you know, sometimes on an hourly basis. And sometimes 10 people were copied on them. Sometimes people were five people were copied on them. We didn't use one of these carrying bridges or other systems that some people have done. And at some point, I, I wouldn't say I was the leader, but I was probably the primary person who exercised management in the following ways. Like I would say, let's just the two of us do this. Let's not involve someone else. Or I would, I'm a very big believer in let, unless it's life threatening, you don't critique what others are doing because they're doing their best and they're doing it as a volunteer. So I had to step in several times where one of the team members was criticizing the other. This isn't the right way to do it. I don't think this is the best way to do it. And I was like, you know, Sally, it may not be the best way to do it, but she's the person we have. <laughs> we don't have another person. Right. And you've got enough to do doing the stuff you are doing. Allow it to be imperfect. That's a great note in all of this because there is kind of that leadership attitude that takes over and your way is the right way. This is the way you see it through and this is emotional. You're, you're protecting a friend. This is huge. And so it's, uh, you really have to be very conscious to move through it without judgment, right? Well, I would say to move through without judgment is... Is, is an impossibly high standard. Yeah. What I would say, you have to learn to not act on your judgment. There you go. Okay, I like that. Unless, again, it's really crucial. I mean, there was um, uh, there were discussions about the choice of where Carl was going to move to. And at one point, it looked like we were just going to make the decision for him. And one of the team members, I think it was Carol, said, no, he must be the decision maker. And that is not fair to him. And we have to find a way to allow him to make the decision. And that was totally right. And so we shifted gears. We delayed the move by a couple of weeks I visited places and narrowed it down to three because we thought going to more than three was unrealistic. We did go to three places. Yeah. 
We scheduled interviews. I laid out the pros and cons and the finances in a simple way for Carl so we could he could evaluate it. And that was an example where where one of the team members did push back and say, no, we need... This is kind of where, where we need to draw the line. Yeah, and that was total, that totally right. There, there were some other situations. Oh, another one was that there's a financial consequence to all of this. So, you know, how much does it cost to keep an apartment empty for six months? How much does it cost to replace furniture, even things like he was in a nursing home and Medicare only pays for 21 days. And I was sure that they would pay for 21 days. But on day 15, the social worker said, oh, he doesn't need to be in a nursing home. Oh, He only needs to be in an assisted living place. Therefore, Medicare cut him off. Oh, wow. And by that point, we had picked the assisted living place but it wasn't ready for him to move in. And there was a gap of a week. And it's like, are you really going to move him someplace temporarily? Is he going to move temporarily? And this is an example where I just made the decision and say, like, okay, it's $2,500. He can afford it. He's going to stay put for that week. Well, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, but there were people who said, oh, that's $2,500. That's right. It's not cheap. Right. So well, and you kind of are feeling like you're being handed a a dictation, right, from this place that you have to kind of deal with their rules, and they're cutting you off, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Which, right. We actually did delegate one of the people to try to do an appeal. Yeah. There's a 24 hour appeal period. It wasn't successful, uh, but that was part of it. So knowing what to do and when to do it, and and also the the issues of respect for the person and where to set limits. I mean, the simple story I'll tell, I took on the assignment of selling Carl's car and he had said that this is where I bought it. This is where I had the service. This is where you should take it. And one person, somebody said, Oh, I think my sister might know somebody. Oh, I think we could probably get a practice. And I was like, no, I'm taking charge of this. I don't have three weeks to deal with this. Right, right, right. I'm going to deal with it. And when I got to the car dealership, they said, well, because there'd been a history of an accident, they were going to pay six or $7,000 less for it. And I called Carl and I said, well, you're not going to actually get 18000 for it. You're only going to get about twelve. And Carl said, well, I'm not happy about that. And this is where you have to learn these skills. I said, you know what? I have just spent four hours on this. This is what's available. Happiness is not a standard we can achieve here. <laughs> Unless you want to get out of bed and come here and do it. Right. This is what we're doing. Right, right. So, um, and and I know that was the right decision. Right. But right at the that's time. the kind of yeah. limit setting that you have to do. And, and, and I would say of the many different challenges of this, the where the dial is on the spectrum of doing things for people, involving them, Making hard decisions, that was a hard one. Yeah, I'm sure. Again, because you want to do everything in their in their best interest. And sometimes you have to just draw the limits, though, because you could spin out. You could spin out with all the details. Yeah. yeah. Before we get into the real estate stuff, let me just say two other things that we had going for us. Carl has really 
smart, competent friends. I mean, I'll say they were all professionals. One of them, the guy with the medical power of attorney was head of finance for Santa Clara County's health service. You know, two of them were professors. I'm a lawyer. One is an architect, really talented people. And all of them were either retired or semi-retired. So they were actually available. So this comes up in families a lot, you know, I mean, my sister works full-time and she takes care of grandchildren part-time. You know, how much time does she have available for my elderly mother? You know, you have to be thinking about thinking about what time limits people have. And then the question is, what, is, what are their capacities? Right. Skill set and availability and their commitment, not just their capacity from a skill perspective, but like, like you say, the commitment, the commitment. And realizing it doesn't have to be this giant commitment, just this fairly reasonable commitment will work just fine in the plan. Seriously, seriously amazed on our end watching this all happen. So did everything go according to plan overall? Like if now you're sitting back evaluating this, or was there a time when you had to really go a different direction? Well, it did go to plan. The Well, it went to plan with one serious uh, setback. And and let me just set this up by uh, talking a little bit about the real estate challenge. So once it was clear that Carl wasn't going to move back, we needed to think about was he going to rent out his condominium? Was he going to sell it? And fortunately, that discussion had already happened. Carl had already been talking to a great real estate agent. Why, thank you. Kim Cole. <laughs> and we evaluated whether that was the right decision uh, from everything from your skill set, your personality, to your proximity being in the building. And, and so, for example, one of the decisions that we made is we didn't interview any other agents. You know, now I find this out. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> I said to Carl, do you want me to interview any other agents? And he said, no, Kim is great. Let's go with her. And we were like, okay, how much t- free time do we have? Yep. You know, how much yep. bandwidth do we have? So um, I did interview Kim so that I could independently. I was interviewed, Fred. <laughs> I was definitely interviewed. So, because I needed to independently <laughs> verify. Absolutely. And, and then we had to think about what was involved with selling the condominium. And the biggest challenge, and which actually had prevented Carl from moving before, is that he had said things like, it's going to take me a year to empty out my condominium. Mm-hmm. I have to decide where everything goes. I have books. I have papers. I have memorabilia. I have art. And so Carl said it's going to take a year. And it's like I said to Carl, we're going to do it in a month. And I have what I call the time theory of task, yeah. which is instead of saying, what is the best way I can do this, no matter how long a time it takes? I say, what can I do to get it done in the next hour? Yep. So I'll tell you how we branched into that, and then I'll tell you, answer your question about where things went, went wrong. Yep. So the main thing we did is we knew we needed a bigger team. And so what we then did is branched out and had sort of tier two members of the team. Mm-hmm. And so Team Carl expanded in that we recruited the former librarian for the University uh, School of Architecture to handle 
the distribution of the books. That was brilliant. I mean, just brilliant. We recruited a woman who has got a lot of experience with art to manage the distribution of the art, what was being given away, what was being stored, what was being taken to Carl's apartment, what was being put in storage. We recruited a wonderful, wonderful friend who had been a friend of his family to deal with family memorabilia. She tracked down Carl's cousin, one in San Francisco and one in the Midwest, who flew out here, and she took charge with meeting with that cousin, met her at the airport, took her to the apartment. They spent a day in the apartment dealing with family memorabilia, and that, of course, was crucial for Carl to know that there was a family member who was dealing with that. So wonderful. So we assigned that. Yeah. Um, I think my favorite story is I was standing at the in the lobby of the building talking to the door person and this very friendly woman was standing next to me and she said oh how's carl doing and what's going on and i said you want to help and i recruited her on the spot she was amazing she gave away furniture she bought some furniture she just jumped in over a one-week period and took care of things one person said she would take care of giving away the piano. And one, the slide librarian came once, and the librarian recruited another professor who just came two afternoons to pack boxes. I said I would take over the kitchen, and I donated things to, the, uh, to refugees and other people. And so we then had like our sub-team to do things. Well, well, where things didn't go well is three weeks after Carl had moved into the assisted living, he fell again. And suddenly, I'm getting another call. Carl's in the hospital. This was worse. This was Highland Hospital. He was injured. He recovered. But we suddenly, where we thought all we had to do was empty the apartment. Right. We were back into medical care, long-term care policy, nursing home, uh, a, a drop in his cognitive abilities, and a real concern of what his needs would be going back in. This is after we'd already signed the contract with assisted living. Right. And we suddenly became worried is he even going to be able to go back to that assisted living? Right. And so we had to reassemble what I'd call the sort of the medical team yeah. as, as opposed mm. to the real estate team. Yeah. And we suddenly had a whole nother three weeks of significantly more work while we were also managing the real estate sale. So that was really hard. And by then also... We had to deal with one person was out of town for three weeks. One person was her her hundred year old mother moved in. So our availability really shifted at that point. Yeah, the whole timeline just kind of had to be changed. Mm-hmm. And your your soldiers, <laughs> you had to recruit more soldiers. Exactly, some had already gone able. <laughs> yes, <Yeah>. yes. <laughs> My gosh, I mean, that's just, um, what was dealt with was amazing. And again, as a third party watching all this happen, jumping in as we could, um, 
helping with where do we donate this? What do we do with this? Because there were a lot of pieces. I mean, a lot of super valuable things, a lot of papers. Carl was a very, um, very important academic person and he had accumulated slides and slides and slides of pictures and papers and papers and papers and papers, right? Things like that, that what do you do with all that? So you could bring in a lot of soldiers to handle some of these tasks, but then again, the management of that was something else. But again, as a third party, it, it was just phenomenal to see all this orchestrated, and it certainly seems like the efficiency didn't drop one bit when there was a change that happened. It probably did, Fred. You probably saw that it did, but it certainly didn't appear that way. How could this have gone any better? I mean, that's kind of hard for me to say. It could have gone better if uh, Carl didn't get sick and Carl didn't fall and, you know, all these, you know, the time right. timeline fit better because Carl was pretty involved in his plan in the very beginning. Right, right. right. How could it have gone better? Uh, well, I would say a couple things because it, it, it did go remarkably well. Yeah. And, and... I've watched other situations where it hasn't gone so well. Uh, so first of all, I think that my focus on efficiency and accomplishment meant I was, I was kind of rough on some people. And they were kind of rough on each other. So I say there were several people you know, who really had pretty seriously hurt feelings where they felt disrespected or disregarded. Okay. You know, where somebody would say, I think we should do X, one of which was at some point maybe a change in doctors or uh, things like that, or change decisions and maybe move to a different place. And I would just say, I appreciate your idea, but we're not going to do that. And... And unlike a conventional family, right. where there is often a hierarchy, the oldest kid, the one who's living next to mom, yep. there's no organized hierarchy here. Right. And so I would say that the need to meet the emotional concerns of people might have been able to be handled better. That's one thing. Uh, the other, and in this case, it wasn't a serious problem, but we were not constrained financially. We had a condominium unit that had good value at a good time in the market. Yep. Carl has a long-term care policy that has to kick in. And by the way, that when you think about who needs to be on the team, the amount of time that I had to spend, and even after all the work I did, and Carl has a paid fiduciary who manages his business they made mistakes and they didn't start it right away there was a month of delay for a while we worked we thought we weren't going to be have coverage that took hours of time so had there been a greater financial concern yes you would say well we were i don't want to say reckless but we could afford to do things more efficiently where most families, you know, having the option, or even, I'll just tell you even the simplest thing. 
Carl had decided where to go. Yep. He's in a nursing home that's clocking off at $500 a day. There's a day in which they can move in, but they need his $16,000 deposit. Like five days before. Yeah. And guess what? He can't find the password to his <laughs> investment account. Oh, that's going to be me. That will be me. <laughs> and it's a Fidelity account. And it takes three days to send a check. Oh, my gosh. Now, Carl and I have been friends for 40 years. Yeah. And I just had no question about it. Yeah. I lent him $16,000 out of my investment account. Yep. And wrote a check that day. Yeah. But you had the wherewithal, thank God, to do that and, and the I comfort even, level to do and that. And I didn't even yeah. tell him that I was doing that yeah. until we were in the car. Yeah. And I said, Carl, just to let you know, I've got the $16,000. Yep. I'm sure you'll pay me back. Yep. And of course, he did once he found the password and sure. got yeah. his money out of his reality oh, account. Oh, my goodness. But had there not been somebody with ability to write a check for $16,000... Right. He would have run up another week at $500 a day in his nursing home. And, you know, this, I mean, I would say passwords on accounts. Is huge. Is huge. I just read a note to myself about yes. that. I mean, so I, yeah. Have somebody who knows how to access your accounts. And even are you set up with auto pay and, and things like that. So that was a close call. But I would say if I don't think we made any major mistakes the other thing I would say is, and it relates to the work you do, Kim, yeah. which is when choosing a professional, whether it's an accountant or a lawyer or a real estate agent, really think about what are what I would call the secondary skills. I mean, yeah. for example, you even offered that people could stage some of the sorting of materials in your office. Yeah. Well, that, you know, when you think about who to hire as a real estate agent, you know, that's not on the list. Or, oh, then there was the day that the piano was supposed to be removed and the elevator didn't work. Right. Oh and, God. you know, when you have a school that's accepting a piano and a overworked person who's managing the transfer of the piano. Right. And a delivery dock and a delivery schedule in a building. Yeah. And then it goes wrong because the elevator doesn't Just work. Just the absolute unexpected, right? Right. Yep. I mean, that was the question of like, okay, I guess it's not going to happen today. Is it going to happen next week? Right, right. So there's just an example of being flexible in managing things. And ha having people, surrounding yourself with people that can think out of the box and and have people skills to work with others. I mean, that's just, that's huge. That's absolutely huge. And that's, I think that's a big part of why this was an amazing feat um, to watch happen is very, very different people. I didn't know any of the people involved when this all started, but got to know a few of you as, um, you know, as the plan was being executed. And there was respect and communication, and there was a real team. I'm going to continue to call it a team. It, it was. Just, uh, One thing you say about communication, yeah. I want to point out about what I call the, the distorting limits of, of email. 
Yes. And one of the pieces this of advice I give to tough. people is, and it's hard, you know, it's 11 at night, you want to get things done, you want to talk to five different people, people or get the word out to five different people. The one thing I would say, and I think we were good about this, I remember like at 6.30 one morning, I'm get, I got an email from one of the team members who was really upset about something. You know, and I had this tendency to just like send the email saying, don't worry, it'll be fine. But in that moment, I actually picked up the phone and called her. Pick up the the phone. phone. And that was crucial. And there were certain times when, you know, let's have a meeting in person and really be attuned to how abrupt email can be, how, how uncaring it can be, and how hard it can be to communicate. And so I would then actually say that. And the other piece is respecting people's time. Yes. I mean, this is one of the hardest things in this. It's like, I want to scratch this off my list. I want it to be done. It's a, it's 10 at night. It's not appropriate for me to call someone at 10 at night just because that's when I want to get it done. Because you, yeah, yeah. And to be able to say, okay, this may not get done for a day, but it's okay and let people have jobs, have families, be busy, and not expect them to be there on your command. Well, everybody comes to this this world from a different place. I mean, that's like the biggest valuable lesson as you get older that you really, really start realizing, right? And how they make decisions and what their comfort level is with achievement is so different and it's very easy to put your values on someone else and especially when you're in a crisis situation which you were in a crisis situation during periods of this and that you know you think about i I think about these endurance races or um you know these kind of impossible feats that need to happen probably war is a good example of that your emotion level is it's it's high. And even if you're trying to be so neutral and just logical and make very logical, efficient decisions, you might be able to operate like that, but other people might not be able to, you know, and to listen and to feel anyway. Well, and you say, you just said two important things to listen and to feel that's part of it is allowing the feelings to happen and not let efficiency override feelings completely. So when someone says, I mean, for example, the issue of whether Carl was going to come back to his apartment to help make decisions and everyone came to the conclusion that that's going to be difficult, that's going to be painful, but it's essential. You don't want to have someone feel like, here's a place I've lived for 10 years. I don't even get to say goodbye to it. Right. And that was an example where it was not the efficient thing to do. Right. But the feelings required it. And you guys made it happen. Yes. And that was not easy. Right. At a point where he could hardly walk. You right. brought him back in that home to say goodbye. Right. Yep. That was that was really amazing. God, Fred, I could talk about this with you forever because I think it just brings up so many things so many reminders to all of us about having a contingency plan. You know, no matter where we are in life. When I was a kid, my uh, my dad was quite a teacher and a leader. And 
we would sit at the dinner table and from time to time this would come up. That was before email. That was before cell phones. But if this horrible disaster happens, if the big quake happens, I lived in the San Fernando Valley at the time. It kind of came after that. But, but anyway, nevertheless, how, what will we do? How will we gather? How will we communicate with each other? How will we do that? We have all these marvelous tools right now which make us live in a very uh, immediate gratification. We don't worry as much about planning because we can achieve so much so quickly. But I think that this story is important for people to hear because you need to have a plan. And especially if you don't have family, you don't have family that's close. And even if you do have family, you need to have a plan. So um, hats off to you and the team. And thank you very much for sharing Carl's story and your involvement. And I, I, I want to close with this thought because um, I thought about it this morning before we, before we talked. And I do see this effort as a, an incredible team that took on a huge task. And I think about you have this amazing project, right? You've worked so hard, so hard, countless hours, countless emotions, money, time, all of these different things. And at the, at the end of the day, you achieved amazing results. Took care of all of Carl's possessions, got Carl in a very safe place and comfortable place, and um, sold his home, which provided savings for him to continue to live in, in a nice space for um, one of the highest prices that we've seen in this building. Um, so just like incredible achievement. What happened to the team when you, when you made it? You made it past the goal. You finished the marathon. Did champagne burst? What happened? Well, the, t the team mostly took a break <laughs> and got some rest. So actually, uh, we've not seen each other very much. Uh, um, there are a couple of us that are close, that have stayed close friends. Yep. And, and some are still involved with helping Carl in various ways and are creeping back into Carl's life in small ways. But I'd say the overall sense was we did a fabulous job. We need some rest. <laughs> Let's go on a beach in Mexico for a week or two. Alone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Fred, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. You're, uh, you're, a wonderful person to tell the story. Well, thank you so much. Your questions are just perfect, and we're so glad you were part of the team as well. Mm, thank you. This show is sponsored by Jay Sandy with U.S. Bank. Our experience with Jay has been very positive. With 19 years of lending experience, his knowledge is broad, and his ability to understand the big picture is deep. In addition, Jay has trained hundreds of mortgage professionals to package loans. His expertise is valued within his own industry and certainly to our clients. A little over a year ago, Jay moved to U.S. Bank because he felt the pricing was most competitive and the product and service were spot on. He's been pleased with the decision, and so have his clients and his realtors. Um, I can definitely say that's true. 
Jay's goal is to deliver an informed, transparent, and quick process with low stress levels and competitive rates. And on top of that, he's a really nice guy and easy to talk to. Jay Sandy with U.S. Bank. Thanks for listening today. And please check us out on Real 510 on iTunes. To find out even more, visit our website, KimColeRealEstate.com. We're a boutique real estate brokerage, women-owned and team-enacted with a focus on urban luxury housing. We are located in Oakland's Jack London Square, serving Oakland and the greater Bay Area. 